millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hello and welcome back to Forma, a podcast featuring conversations with authors, teachers, creators, and leaders that are carefully contemplating the intersection of classical thought and contemporary culture and the audio companion to FormaJournal.com. I'm David Kern, an editor over at FormaJournal.com. For today's show, I spoke with Jeffrey Overstreet, who is a novelist and film critic who currently lives near Seattle, Washington, and teaches at Seattle Pacific University. And we chatted because over at FormaJournal.com, we are featuring a bunch of content featuring reflections on the life and work of Madeline Langle, whose birthday was November 29th. So to celebrate this week over on the website, we have an interview with her biographer, Sarah Arthur, called The Enduring Legacy of Madeline Langle. And you can find that over at formerjournal.com. We're going to have this conversation with Jeffrey Overstreet. We have an essay coming up on her YA fiction, as well as a number of other things that will be featured on the website. But today, for this episode of the podcast, I wanted to sit down with Jeffrey Overstreet because he has been an outspoken fan of Madeline Langle's work. As I said, Jeffrey teaches over at Seattle Pacific University, where he teaches film studies and uh, creative writing. He has also written four acclaimed fantasy novels, including Aurelia's Colors and The Aleboy's Feast, which were both published by Random House and are available wherever books are sold. He also has a movie-going memoir called Through a Screen Darkly, and his award-winning arts writing has been published in places like Image, Paste, Christianity Today, Books and Culture, and many other magazines and websites. To learn more about Jeffrey, you can head over to lookingcloser.org, where he blogs about music, film, and other arts. I'm a huge fan of Jeffrey Overstreet. Um, When I was in college, he was a big resource to me when I was studying film and and creative writing, and he was quite inspiring to me. So this this is a fun treat for me to be able to chat with him about one of our mutual favorites, Madeline Langle. We chatted a lot about her book, Walking on Water, which Jeffrey is particularly fond of, as well as a little bit about her fiction series, which begins with A Wrinkle in Time. And with that, I will kick it right over to my interview with Jeffrey Overstreet about Madeline Langle. Thanks for listening, and I'll talk to you on the other side. Where did you first discover Madeline Langle? And how did you, how did you I guess, fall in love with her work? Well, uh, I attended a, a private Christian school in Portland, Oregon, kindergarten through through high school, um, with the same, same small class of students and a small community of teachers. And that community was very focused on anything labeled Christian. And so I spent a lot of time in Christian bookstores and, um, loving fairy tales and, uh, Disney stuff. When I was a kid, I gravitated to anything that was fantasy focused, uh, and there, well, there wasn't, wasn't much of that in Christian bookstores. There was Tolkien, there was Lewis. Uh, if, if it was an outstanding Christian bookstore, there was Charles Williams. Um, and uh, yeah, there was, was, Mad- the was Madeline Langle. Right, exactly, <laughs> exactly, the Inklings. And um, except for some really, really, you know, preachy allegorical uh, retellings of Pilgrim's Progress or whatever, which, which was heavily allegorical to begin with. Um, <laughs> yeah. So... 
So Madeline Lengel um, got my attention there. I was not immediately drawn to her work because I was much more into fantasy and didn't want to read about other kids and their troubles at school because that world seemed so so different than than my my school and my friends. Um, and I wasn't particularly interested in science, and she very much was. So hmm. I don't remember loving A Wrinkle in Time as a kid. Hmm. What made a big difference to me was when I was a, a senior in high school, and my, my English teacher, Michael Demkowicz, uh, gave me a copy of Walking on Water, Reflections on Faith and Art. And if I had to point to three or four books that have really changed my life. I mean, that would be among them. I probably have six or seven copies of it and they're all underlined to the point that I couldn't possibly hand them off to somebody. Um, <laughs> that, that was a book that really gave me permission to dedicate my life to writing creatively as a Christian uh, and to trust uh, my imagination, to trust um, the ideas that were intriguing to me, believing that the truth would uh, reveal itself within the work and within the inspiration, rather than having to fashion my imaginative endeavors to deliver the truth to an audience. And when I look back at my own creative writing as a child, so many of my early stories were obviously burdened with this sense that I had to be a missionary. And so there were good Christian characters and evil non-Christian characters and the good Christian characters always won. But I got bored with that, with that pretty quickly. And reading Walking on Water was, was so liberating to, to believe that if you, um, if you love story, if you love characters and if you love truth, then you're going to know a good story when you find it. And you don't have to then sort of uh, co-opt it or, or uh, give it an infusion of Christianity, but anything beautiful and true is the stuff of God. And that, that has shaped my life, not just in my creative writing, but in the way I um, enthusiastically pursue all kinds of art and the way now that I teach. So I think that that first profound encounter was that first reading of Walking on Water and the countless rereadings since then. Uh, then when I, when I uh, arrived at Seattle Pacific University as a freshman in 1989, I can't remember if it was 1990, I think it, I think it was, that she came and spoke here. And that was, I mean, I, that was one of those moments where I look back and I'm like, I knew, I knew that this was one of those moments in my life that I was going to get to meet her and thank her for that. I'm holding the copy of Walking on Water that she signed during that visit. Hmm. And she was every bit as joyful and funny and alive as, as I would have imagined. Um, I'll never forget that. Hmm. How does that, how do those characteristics of hers that you just described there, that, that joyfulness and that sense of being alive. How do those characteristics manifest themselves in her work? There is, um, there, there is an enthusiastic and fearless engagement with what is in front of her as opposed to what I've seen so often in quote unquote Christian literature or Christian art, which mm -hmm again, is, is burdened by that sense of we have to 
we have to get good results from this. Um, she would plunge into whatever the latest science was. You know, she was fascinated with quantum physics um, because she knew that if you explored those questions with your metal detectors seeking truth, uh, it was going to lead you to God. And if those discoveries seemed to contradict uh, the common knowledge of the church, then maybe it was time for the church to be ready to receive a new or at least a larger word from God, um, that God was not going to plant things in his own creation uh, to contradict himself, to, to test us whether we really believed his word or not. <laughs> and um, while I never did become an enthusiastic student of science, <laughs> um, I got to say these days, I value it more than maybe I did in school. Maybe I should have taken it more seriously. But as I, as, I, as I focus with my students now on writing solid arguments and seeking evidence that backs up those claims, I can hear Madeline in the back of my mind saying, you know, don't um, follow the truth, um, follow what is verifiable, follow what holds up under scrutiny because you will find that that uh, is harmonious with the word of God. And if it doesn't seem to be, then you really need to look at both the science and, and your understanding of the word of God and, and see which one may be a little too narrow or a little misguided. Um, so anyway, all that back to your, your question, I, I think the, the joy was in the faith and the faith was in the truth will win out love will win out, mercy will win out. And I think she would have been delighted by recent science that, that shows that scientists are learning more and more that they can trust what is beautiful. That if a solution presents itself or a concept presents itself and it seems beautiful, then that means it has integrity. And if it has integrity, then it's going to hold up under scrutiny. And that means we can pursue beauty and trust that it will be synonymous with, with logos, <laughs> that was the word she liked, um, with truth. So you mentioned that she, in some ways has informed, um, the way that you teach or maybe, mm -hmm. I, I can't remember if you said it, you said it that way exactly. I don't think so, but can you, can you, can you explain how she has inspired your interactions with your students? I mean, you mentioned that you, you the, about the way you kind of help your students pursue an argument, but how does how does what she taught you as far as that that joy and the faith and how does that manifest itself for you in, in in the classroom? Many of our listeners are teachers themselves, and that's kind of a everlasting pursuit, right? How do you how do you manifest those those sorts of things or embody those sorts of things for your students? Have you thought about that at all, and, and how she's inspired that for you? Yeah, quite a bit actually. It depends on the class. Um, if I'm teaching a creative writing class, then I'm thinking about what Madeline. Uh, her, I'm thinking about her approach to creative work as, as a sort of collaboration that when you pursue questions of what if, um, that, uh, the work knows more than you do. Um, and that, let's see, I have a, I have a line from her here. Uh, she writes, over the years, I have come to recognize that the work often knows more than I do. And with each book I start, I have hopes that I may be helped to serve it a little more fully. Um, I often get that sense when, when I'm writing that, you know, maybe something isn't working or I'm not pleased with it, but then I share it in a workshop and somebody says, well, what I hear going on in there is this. And I just sit there thunderstruck. Hmm. Uh, and I, 
it's my favorite moment when I am interviewing an artist, whether that's a filmmaker or a musician. Uh, and I say, you know, well, I love how you, how you have this going on in your work. Uh, and they sort of blink and go, you know, I've never thought of it that way before. <laughs> but if you are, if you are trusting that, that, uh, inclination toward beauty and you follow what, <laughs> what dear old Gandalf would have said rings true, um, <laughs> then, then the work is saying more than you know. And I, I think that models sort of the, the example given us by Christ in storytelling that uh, when he told, when he shared a parable, he was reluctant to interpret it for us, that he kept it grounded in, in common storytelling about common people without labeling anything as religious or Christian. And of course the, the, the term didn't exist at the time, um, but trusted listeners to think about choices and consequences and um, that that would speak in many different ways to many different readers, not contradictory ways necessarily, but that we all come to art with different experiences, different fears, different vantage points, different opinions. And that's going to enable us to see different aspects of truth uh, within a work of art, sort of the way different mountain climbers uh, will have entirely different experiences on a mountain, but that doesn't mean they're not all learning about the learning real things about the same mountain. Mm. Um, so when I, when I teach creative writing students, uh, we, we talk a lot about, you know, trust, stay focused on your characters and on the story. Don't worry about what it means because when you step back from the story at the end, the art knows more than you do. And you may be surprised by what your story ends up being about. Mm. I also encourage them to develop rich vocabularies and, and keep reading stuff that's harder than what they might typically enjoy because Madeline emphasized that the more words we know, the better we can think that, that mm. words come first. As you learn words, you develop more complicated uh, ways of thinking and perceiving and interpreting things. Um, and I think a lot of the challenges I'm finding in my creative writing classes right now is that students aren't reading literature. They're, they're reading a lot, but they're reading it on, Tweets. yeah, yeah, right. They're, re they're reading social media, which has a very limited vocabulary. <laughs> we don't really uh, use words on social media. <laughs> pictures <laughs> and abbreviations. And emoji. Yeah. Emojis. Exactly. <laughs> um, so, uh, and then in, in other classes, like in my faith and film class, when we're, when we're sort of doing a film survey of films from around the world and from different eras, um, I will talk about how Madeline uh, did not limit herself to finding truth within Christian thought, that she was enthusiastic about reading Buddhist writers, that she was enthusiastic about reading the Quran because she believed that God is at work within anyone made in his image and that, that all traditions that are, that, that are seeking truth probably capture some of it. And so long as it does not contradict uh, the revelations of Christ, uh, we should anticipate, I mean, even by the instruction of our own scriptures, we should anticipate that the invisible things of God from the creation of the world are clearly seen being understood through what has been made. So there is without, so they are without excuse that uh, anyone earnestly seeking truth within any tradition may discover it in a way that will benefit everyone. And so her, while she insisted that she was not a universalist in, in, her book, Walking on Water, 
she also refused to limit herself and to say where God may or may not actually be working and speaking. Mm. And I think that that's valuable for any kind of course. Mm. You know, I, I have film students who don't want to watch uh, films that are in other languages because they just don't see them as relevant. And they're, they're missing out on so much um, just because they don't want to read subtitles. Mm. Um, and I think this, this goes for other genres and, and um, neglected aspects of our own Bible that have things to reveal to us, but they're going to take work to mm. learn to read within their genre and interpret them properly. Mm. Would you say that, that, uh, that she helped sort of um, form or give guidance for you on how to kind of ab- approach that work, that, the, that work of, you know, reading carefully and being aware of, of what's not on the surface um, and, and kind of being uh, gracious in your approach to, to the way people wrote? Is that something that you think she, I guess, I don't know how, how else to put it, besides that she kind of gave you guidance on in her work? I think it was by example. I mean, just the, 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 the wide range of texts that she would enthusiastically quote. Um, one of the first encounters I had with her was in a book called Reality and the Vision that was published by the Chrysostom Society, where different Christian writers wrote about the writers who most inspired them. Hmm. And um, in, in this book, um, Philip Yancey writes about John Donne. Stephen Lawhead writes about J.R.R. Tolkien. Eugene Peterson writes about Dostoevsky and Madeleine Mengel writes about George MacDonald. And that led me to read George MacDonald for the first time. Um, Hmm. But she loved his vision of how God speaks. Um, I have here on my wall in a little frame, a quote from George MacDonald that I discovered thanks to Madeleine Mengel. He says, when we understand the outside of things, we think we have them. Yet the Lord puts his things in subdefined, suggestive shapes, yielding no satisfactory meaning to the mere intellect, but unfolding themselves to the conscience and the heart. And right away, that sounds like the experience I have reading the Inklings, reading Langell, but also now reading science and seeing that God does not create a tree and then tell us what it means. He creates a living word that goes on speaking every day in different ways to anyone who approaches it. And these things are not easy to explain. Uh, We have to reach for metaphors. We have to reach for poetry in order to sort of cast a net around the mysterious revelation of that particular word of God. And that seems to be the way she approached, uh, taught us to approach science through her novels, through um, A Wrinkle in Time, and especially the second one, A Wind in the Door, which is not, I, I, I don't enjoy that book as much as I do A Wrinkle in Time. Um, but I do, I am impressed with how she takes her characters into subatomic experiences <laughs> and brings brings to life these complex scientific concepts so that uh, even children can read about them and see that this isn't just about chemistry or whatever. This is, this is an illustration of, of the cosmos that God has made, that what, what is happening within the atom is what's happening within the universe. Hmm. And that these things have voices. You can actually dialogue with them. 
And that sounds like fairy tales, but um, I think she has has taught me to approach the natural world and my own body in, in different ways so that I see that everything is a language. You can't separate what is sacred and what is secular, just as you can't separate what is spiritual and what is physical. It's all, it's all a language. And um, you have to tune your ears to listen for what is really being said to the conscience and the heart, in, in George MacDonald's words. As, as you are studying the information. Mm. So that just inclines me to be open to revelation anywhere. And I'm, I'm grateful to her for that. Mm. You, have you had any pushback from your students at you know, at a Christian university where you're kind of sharing some of these ideas from Langle, the, the kind of ideas that would get her accused of being a universalist, which as <laughs> you said, kind of denied was true. But have you felt or have you heard pushback from students at, at, a, at that school? I actually... Uh, have not the way I anticipated, but that's because I grew up in Christian education during a very different time. Uh, mm-hmm. The the well, at least the the Christian education institutions that I knew growing up were much more wary. There 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 was a lot of pushback. There were very few uh, films were allowed uh, to be screened on campus in any official way when I was an undergraduate at Seattle Pacific, you know, and now we have film classes where we're watching all kinds of things. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, only certain kinds of music were allowed, uh, at school functions when I was in a Christian high school. Um, and I remember in elementary school, looking at classics of American literature in the school library and finding the whole lines had been blacked out with Sharpies because they were afraid we would, the students would be corrupted by reading rough language or evidence of unhealthy perspectives on the world. And now, now the students I, I find coming in, even those from more conservative Christian traditions are so immersed in pop culture that, um, I think they know the, the value of these things that um, I, I see a lot of eye rolling when I refer to uh, those traditions that would censor or that would say certain areas of, of imaginative endeavor are, are off limits to us uh, because they, they, they've had those experiences already uh, with, with popular music. Um, and they, they also cringe at the idea of co-opting, what is good and what is beautiful um, and, you know, trying to force it into some preachy message delivery service, so to speak. Um, I love what Madeline wrote about uh, the St. Matthew Passion. Um, She said, the St. Matthew Passion is an icon of the highest quality for me, an open door into the realm of the numinous. Bach, of course, was a man of deep and profound religious faith a faith which shines through his most secular music. As a matter of fact, the melody of his moving chorale, O Sacred Head Now Wounded, was the melody of a popular street song of the day, but Bach's religious genius was so great that it is now recognized as one of the most superb pieces of religious music ever written. There is nothing so secular that it cannot be sacred, and that is one of the deepest messages of the Incarnation. Mm-hmm. And I will read that, and then my film class will watch a Woody Allen movie, of all things, um, <laughs> from 1989, and they will cringe at some of the attitudes, um, but they will also see that that in, say, crimes and misdemeanors, characters make decisions that lead to 
to devastating consequences. And those decisions are driven by a, a sense of amorality. And so then we have really interesting discussions about how, once again, the work knows more than the artist. The artist is em embracing and publicly preaching um, a message of amorality, but his movie is showing that there are, um, there are deep, troubling questions in his own imagination about characters who live that way. Uh, and it creates a, a wonderful forum for thinking about how uh, when you try to create something uh, relevant or beautiful and it strays off the course of truth, um, uh, then it falls apart. But you can insist on a godless world until you're blue in the face. And if you make something that's beautiful, it's going to contradict you on that point. So that um, the, Madeline comes in very handy there by saying, look, any, anything that is, that is beautiful um, cannot be sec secular. So on a related note, we have another podcast called Close Reads and we go through uh, various novels um, at a pretty leisurely pace, reading a few chapters at a time and discussing them. And we've got a, a Facebook group of people that are listening and you know adding to the conversation there. And so right now we just started reading The Great Gatsby. Oh, wow. And so there's been a debate there about what role a book like The Great Gatsby should play, you know, in say a Christian home or a Christian high school, for example. And mm -hmm. so one of the, you know, the kind of, you know, it, it, I guess the discussion's kind of been drawn along some of the predictable lines, but the discussion has kind of turned on the, the idea of at uh, what point should, or to what degree should we be reading stories that you might call, uh, I guess, loosely, you might call cautionary tales where they're sort of diagnosing a problem and, you know, sort of revealing the truth about a, a culture doing that and sure sort of offering us warnings as the great Gatsby does as opposed to prioritizing stories where there may be models of virtue that can be worth imitating you know like uh, types of you know what we would call uh, what we call types um, so where do you think Madeline Langle would fall in that discussion in terms of the value of the sort of cautionary tale that diagnoses a problem and you know is valuable because it does that as opposed to the story that offers a model that's worth imitating. And, and what would she say about um, what we should offer to young people in particular, do you think? Um, I think, well, she, she talks a lot about the importance of maintaining that childlike faith. She refused to, I love this. She, she refused to refer to herself as just the age that she is now. She, um, I don't have the quote in front of me, but she says, you know, I am, I am also five and eight and 14 and 32. Um, <laughs> so sort of like age, age is, you know, being the, the rings of a tree. Um, you, you are, you are more and more all the time. You didn't leave something behind. Uh, and, and she talks about writing about truth to children because often that's the only way to get through to adults. Uh, sometimes I think Pixar Studios takes the same approach. Um, they, they're really making movies for the parents, right? But, um, but when you see the promotional materials, it's all aimed at kids. And then you get there and it's, the concepts are profound for, for everyone. Um, I think that the, A Wrinkle in Time, as, as a good example, um, takes us to some really horrifying places. I mean, you mm -hmm. see... You see the dangers of certain philosophies, the dangers of certain societal models, uh, the dangers of conformity. 
and you have a you have I'm, I'm reluctant to say a hero because Meg is is very flawed in the book. I mean, she her her emotions are very mercurial. She yeah. makes big mistakes. She um, acts very rashly, and there are consequences for those actions. But uh, in some moments where it counts, and this is a very Tolkien thing too, where there is yeah. a prioritization of of love and grace then there is sort of this answering force of love and grace that's even greater than what the quote-unquote hero is doing. And so Meg becomes a wonderful model rather than a hero in that she um, collaborates with that greater force of, of love. And so we don't come away from a wrinkle in time looking to her as some, some great hero the way a lot of the world's myths and legends, uh, you know, sort of, valorize or or celebrate the the hero model but she's yeah. more inclined to embrace holy fools and saints people who make major mistakes but because they have faith um great reconciliation and healing and goodness is able to pour into the world through those broken vessels uh, so i think that she pushes back against the model that a lot of Christian storytelling wanted is that, as I remember it growing up, which was we we need great stories ab about very good people who do the right thing, right? And instead, say, well, what are the models in Scripture? I mean, the quote unquote heroes of the faith are <laughs> ridiculous when you look at them closely, <laughs> right? And pr yeah. prone to spectacular error, and um, yeah, they become occasions for the grace of God. Uh, mm. Lauren Winner has has spoken about this too, about how stories of saints are are much more valuable to us than stories of heroes, and I mm. think that's very true. So, having said that, if you're looking at something like The Great Gatsby, you're looking at a story a story full of really messed up people um, zigzagging their way toward you know toward something good, and often zigging far more than they zag, so to speak, um, yeah, yeah. pursuing a good thing, but in the wrong way. Um, and then that gets complicated, of course, with other interpretations of that story. The, the recent movie sure. of The Great Gatsby was one of those occasions where I had to say, okay, the story points us in this direction, but what does this movie love? Mm -hmm. The movie loves music. That's great. The movie loves <laughs> visual beauty. That's great. But it also loves money. That movie loves yeah. money. And yeah. so, so now I think it's even harder to teach The Great Gatsby if the students have that reference point because you have to pull them out of that where so much of what's happening on the screen is about glitz and glamour mm -hmm. and focus on what gets priority of place in the book, uh, which is characters and decisions and consequences. Um, mm -hmm. And I think, but I think a book like The Great Gatsby teaches us to be more honest about ourselves, but also to be more compassionate toward those that we would like to write off as monsters. Mm. Uh, I think Gatsby's a good book for us right now. There are a lot of people with a lot of money doing a lot of horrible things. Um, and the great Gatsby makes us ask, what were they, what, what are they longing for? I mean, they're going about it maybe all the wrong ways, but what, what do, what is it they want uh, at the heart of things? What, um, what troubles have they experienced that make them pursue some kind of resolution in this way? And that can make us more empathetic and more merciful in the long run. And we're right back to, you know, Bilbo and Frodo with Gollum. Um, 
you know, that the, the real triumph of the Lord of the Rings is not the destruction of an enemy, but the mercy and the patience shown toward a monster and the understanding of where he came from and what happened in his life. Hmm. You mentioned that you were not inclined necessarily to call Meg a hero, but I was struck by the fact that even if she's not sort of that traditional archetypal hero that you mentioned, um, or as you mentioned, she's also not really an anti-hero the way we sort of think about it. She's not like a Don Draper anti-hero at the same time. No, 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 <laughs> no, no. She really is. I mean, she was, she, her, her compass does ultimately settle on love. Um, but part of that is that she's experienced it. I mean, the, mm. the Murray family is a, a rare and wonderful thing in literature. <laughs> you have a loving father, if slightly misguided, although the movie makes him much more misguided, I think. Um, mm. You have a loving uh, mother. You have siblings to support each other. Um, you know, that's a, that's a rare thing. I mean, outside of the Incredibles. And, <laughs> um, it's true, yeah. Uh, so she she has models herself that help her keep that compass in tune. Um, it's ironic. I'm using the metaphor of the compass because there, of course, is another fantasy epic that is written in answer to Narnia, so to speak, that um, really botches the idea of a moral compass. Um, but also yeah. I think, I think Meg is an important uh, flawed hero as any good hero is. Um, in that she is so unique in, in the literature of the time. There, there were no major, that I can think of, no major fantasy stories or science fiction stories that had a young girl as a hero. Hmm. Um, hmm. And one that is not, you know, beautiful, looking for just the right boyfriend, um, but who is, is loved by a, a rather idealized boyfriend, I think, if we're honest, um, in, in spite of that, that she... Um, she's kind of a nerd. And, uh, when, when the movie of the wrinkle in time, a wrinkle in time opened recently, I, I had no gripe whatsoever with the idea of this, uh, multiracial family, uh, representing the Murrays, because I thought that was very true in a sense to what Madeline wanted us to think about, which was mm. you can be, uh, different in your class or in your community. Um, and that can make you feel alienated, but that does not mean you have anything less to contribute. In fact, maybe you have something more to contribute because you are unique. And mm -hmm. so, well, well, to, I heard some people criticizing the the movie as just just being politically correct uh, by having an African American Meg Murray. Um, I think Madeline would have loved that. Uh, I, I think that that was very true to the themes of the story. Mm. Calvin, on the other hand, I do have a problem with. I don't, I don't, <laughs> he's, he's just, he's sort of like a wish fulfillment boyfriend for Meg. Maybe, maybe that's Madeline giving her character what, what she wishes she had had <laughs> when she was, <laughs> I don't know. What did you think of the movie overall though? For the, I mean, I've read some of your reviews, but and I, maybe uh, we should just point people to your reviews on. Uh, yeah, I don't, I actually don't think I have written uh, a proper review of that film. Um, I came away with so many mixed feelings that I thought if I sit down to write about this movie, it's going to take hours and hours and hours. And I just haven't had that. Um, but I felt like the conversations about the film went there anyway, uh, to this sense that it honors some, if not most of the themes of the story. Um, it's almost everybody agrees that the cast is very strong, that the scenes, um, 
with Meg and her father are particularly strong, um, but that it sort of succumbs to um, pop culture platitudes in places of the more profound um, gospel of the story. Um, there are places, I mean, it's not a particularly preachy Christian story, but there are places where she has her characters who are talking about all kinds of philosophers and, and famous figures where whenever Jesus is mentioned, it's, very, it's a very profound observation and moment that really connects to what's going on in the story. The movie took all of that out and replaced references to Jesus with references to Lin-Manuel Miranda, um, <laughs> which <laughs> has me shaking my head. I mean, I might have been okay Interesting with... Interesting choice. Yeah, I might have been okay with a reference to Hamilton in the movie, uh, considering the characters and the, the, the reimagining of the story, but, but to replace <laughs> uh, the teachings of Jesus with that just felt like, come on. Um, I don't understand that at all. Uh, and then you have to be willing to accept a 50-foot Oprah, um, which, is, you know, uh, yeah, that, that, that kind of jostled my suspension of disbelief. <laughs> when did you discover her fiction? Because you mentioned that you first discovered her through mm -hmm. Walking on Water. When did her fiction become something that you turned to? Well, my wife and I reread A Wrinkle in Time uh, just before the movie came out, and I remembered that, but then when we went on to A Wind in the Door, I, I had to admit a few chapters in that I didn't remember this at all. So mm -hmm. I don't know that I read the whole trilogy as a kid. Um, I think I read A Wrinkle in Time out of a sense of, of responsibility. Uh, it was so acclaimed. And then it had that added appeal of being a banned book, right? I mean, that <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah. book has been uh, banned um, and is still attacked uh, by Christians who apparently haven't read it as uh, being satanic or whatever. They, they don't like the fact that there are witches in it. And I just <sighs> read the story and you'll find out that they're not witches, that they dress up like witches because they think that's funny. Um, when you find out what they really are, you might feel a little stupid about... So you're saying things. you should actually read the book before you judge it? I know that's a controversial view. <laughs> I, guess you'd have to, I guess you'd have to read more than 240 characters. Is it 240 now? 280 characters? 200, I, I, I think it's 240. I don't know. Um, yeah, something like that. Anyway, I think, I think I probably read the full novel for the first time in, in, in high school. Um, but she didn't mean that much to me then. It wasn't until I'd read Walking on Water that that, that vision was so... Um, so transforming, so, so liberating for me, so um, meaningful to me that then I wanted to go back to the story and see how that was at work in the story. So I, I read the mm. book, I read the novel more as a how to, <laughs> more as a, so how, you know, how are these principles at work in this storytelling, um, which is so backwards from the way I fell in love with so many other stories where it was the characters and the world building that, that enchanted me. Mm. I mean, I still, I still favor the Lord of the Rings over Narnia because that is, that is a world that I completely believe in when I'm reading it. Whereas when I'm reading Narnia, for all of Lewis's insistence that it's not an allegory, I, I feel like so many characters come with this sort of footnote about what <laughs> yeah. worldview or what famous person they represent uh, mm -hmm. or or what part of the gospel algebra they are, <laughs> they are <laughs> illustrating. Yeah. Yeah. So, so you got to, when you were 
really sort of reading Langle closely, you were thinking in terms of the craft itself. Less, mm-hmm. So it was less about kind of being swept away by the world by the time you got to it and more about what is she doing to create this and how is she kind of imbuing it with the things she's trying to say and, and the truth that she's after. Yes. Yes. And I think even early on, I was, I was thinking, boy, she, she really needed an editor. Um, <laughs> it's funny. I, I, I read things now that I loved as a kid and I, and I think, wow, I, I would have marked this up if I received it in class. Um, there, there are in a wind in the door, especially there are, um, there are scenes that are so dialogue heavy and the dialogue will be these solid paragraphs that run for pages um, where you can tell that she's just so excited about this concept, about bringing this scientific concept to life. She's so excited about how she is impersonating um, uh, forces uh, that uh, the story can, can really drag at points, at least for me. Um, But, but it's the spirit, of the thing that I love, it's that that enthusiasm that enthusiasm to uh, enable uh, the created world to speak uh, in a way that children will hear and understand. Sort of the way uh, Tolkien felt so deeply for the trees that were being cut down uh, near his home that he gave them gave the Ents voices in the Lord of the Rings. Mm. Well, I know you need to to get going. So I have two kind of, well, I guess two hopefully quick questions for you as we mm-hmm. wrap up. One is um, when it comes to the Wrinkle in Time series for people who may have not had their kids reading it or never read the books themselves either because of reputation or because someone recommended they not. When when would you recommend that, that they start? I realize that's a kind of impossible mm-hmm. question given that you don't know the students that that we're talking about here, but generally speaking, when would you say is a safe time to begin considering it either for, you know, a reading at home or for, you know, reading in school? Well, when I wrote Aurelius Colors, I was writing that as a fantasy novel for adults. And I have received more letters from 10 year old girls than from grownups. Um, so I, I find that I always underestimate what kids who love reading are ready for. Um, I first read Watership Down when I was 10 and I read it over and over and over after that. And I've had heard so many parents have been horrified by that thinking no no one should read Watership Down until they're an adult because that is a horrifying book about war. And, Mm. you know, yeah, they're bunny rabbits, but they're tearing each other to pieces. And (laughs) I almost said pizzas. That would be a strange story. (laughs) Um, um, So, I mean, I'm inclined to say uh, that A Wrinkle in Time is, is... ready for 10 year olds. Um, Cause there's never been a nine year old boy who was outside playing with his brother, playing like army or pretending he was like, <laughs> you know, right. a wolf attacking a bear or something. That's never happened before. Well, and I think, uh, her, her manifestation of, of magical characters is still strikes me as so distinct. Um, the, <laughs> the, uh, Mrs. Witch or, or in any of the three in, in a, in a wrinkle in time, but then later in the series, the way she manifests angels is absolutely psychedelic um, and truer to the description of cherubim in the in the scriptures than anything I've found in fantasy. Uh, mm. They are terrifying and confusing, and have, eye, have eyes all over the place, and they have wings all over the place. They don't they don't look like the, the guys from Wings of Desire, and they don't look like the woman <laughs> touched by an angel. And uh, you you are encountering something that is profoundly other in those books. And at the same time, 
those entities are interested in human beings as a unique uh, word of God. And so I think kids would, would find that baffling and strange and different than so much fantasy that is just at this point derivative of derivative, um, you know, rehashes of the Lord of the Rings. Yeah. Um, but, yeah. but also I think um, with so much conversation in, in culture right now about the importance of, of science and the value of science and the, the importance of, of countering fake news with real research and real evidence. Um, I, I think Madeline is a, a great science fiction writer for kids today because um, she, she makes science, I think, more appealing than, well, than it was to me in school and the way it was taught in school. Um, it seems, for lack of a better word, magical or enchanted or mm. uh, spiritual, transcendent, um, mm. than, than just information, which is how it felt to me uh, in school. Yeah, kid. she's embodying something yeah. deeper at the heart of it. Right, absolutely. Uh, so, I, yeah, I think... Um, I, I wish I had read A Wrinkle in Time when I was eight and really gotten into it. Um, uh, and I, I, would, I would recommend it for, for kids that age. But I would also really recommend it as family reading. Um, there's not a lot of that going around anymore. But families uh, that, that read together give children the chance to, <laughs> to show the parents what they're seeing in the story, but also the experience of hearing different perspectives and interpretations of a story. Hmm. Um, my primary misgiving about uh, movies becoming the dominant form of storytelling or television becoming the dominant form of storytelling is that we experience it, we experience it in solitude most of the time. Mm -hmm. Or if we watch it with somebody else, then we just flip the channel and go on to the next thing. We don't sit and talk about it. And um, these books are a great opportunity to sit and experience something together, talk about it, uh, and then revisit it later to see what else it has to say. One of the things I love about reading with kids or or even watching movies with kids, maybe that's this is less true of watching movies, but kids just want to talk about the stuff that they just experienced. You know, yeah, yeah. Absolutely. They want to they, their instinct is to tell us what they loved and ask questions about it. And I feel like it, you know, the biggest problem, well, not the biggest problem, one big major problem is that we sort of tend to discourage that for some reason. Just I don't know if it's a cultural thing or but but for whatever reason, they lose that. And I don't know if, or we lose that, I suppose. I don't know if it's because we decide we're too cool to talk about it anymore or if something happens as we become adolescents. But I know my own kids, I've got a seven-year-old, six-year-old, they, when they read something, when they, they're talking about it for days and days, if they really love it, especially. And I'm, that's one of those things that I've been thinking a lot about. How do we preserve that? Um, well, there, there are more, there's more information all the time about... Um, uh, suicide and how, how young people who consider or commit suicide, uh, you, you can often trace their despair back to whether they felt like they had a safe place to play as a child and mm -hmm. that, that it was safe to ask questions. Uh, if they feel safe, they develop these muscles of being able to imagine ways around or through a problem. And if they are discouraged from asking questions um, and from playing what if and from role playing and from 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 fantasy, from from make believe, then when they are confronted with problems, they don't have the experience and the vision to imagine that 
this problem is not everything. Mm-hmm. Uh, I remember Newsweek published a study several years ago that said um, preschool children on average ask their parents 100 questions a day. And it seems low. <laughs> yeah, maybe. <laughs> um, and then they said by middle school, they've, they've pretty much stopped asking. Uh, and it's, and it's no coincidence. I'm, I'm quoting now this, this article. It's no coincidence that this same time is when student motivation and engagement plummet. They didn't stop asking questions because they lost interest. It's the other way around. They lost interest because they stopped asking questions and you have to find out why, who discouraged them, who, who, um, I mean, within, within Christian communities and contexts like that, you have to wonder if there comes a point where the voices of authority start discouraging questions because they don't know how to reconcile what's going on in the world with what they are teaching in church. And that's where Madeline steps up and says, bring it on. <laughs> you know, let's, let's talk about what's happening in the world. And if our, if our faith has no answer for that, then then maybe we need to go back to the scriptures and see if we have given up too early on these questions. Mm. Well, with that, I'll let you go. That's a, I think that's a great place to end. And um, I know you have to go to a meeting, so I will let you, let you do that. But thanks for spending some time with me and uh, for chatting with me about Madeline Lengel. Oh, it's, it's, it's a pleasure. I'm, I'm happy to celebrate her any day of the week. So we can do this again sometime. <laughs> All right. <laughs> thank perfect. You, Sounds thank good. You for, thanks. Uh, thank you for providing this opportunity to celebrate her. That's great. No, of course. Thank you for being part of it. Well, thanks again to Jeffrey Overstreet for joining me for this conversation about Madeline Langle. For more of our coverage on Madeline Langle's life and her work, head over to formerjournal.com. And don't forget that if you want more from Jeffrey Overstreet, such as his writing on film and music, you can head over to lookingcloser.org. Well, that's it for this episode of the podcast. Thanks for listening, and we'll talk to you next time. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade.